you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. I'm Oliver Banks, your host and your guide to successfully transforming retail. And welcome to episode 122 of the Retail Transformation Show. Thanks for tuning in. Now, the last few episodes have been really diving into a huge topic, that of data. And I wanted to continue that on today and dive into a more specific use case of data so we can really begin to see how it's flowing through and some of the different aspects that we've spoken about in the last few episodes occur in real life settings. To help me do that, I'm really pleased to welcome David Payne onto the show today. David is the Chief Product Officer at Rotogeek and previously had been at McKinsey as well as in banking where he was a stock market analyst for supermarkets. And the reason that I chose David to come on is that he has this great understanding of both the technical aspects that go into the data and the forecasting and the optimization, as you're going to hear about. But he also has a a great understanding of the business setting as well and actually how it applies through. So we're going to lift the lid on the Rotogeek system so we can understand how it's working and how data is flowing through and some of the different considerations that go on inside Rotogeek, as well as general data use. I think it's a really fascinating conversation, so I can't wait to hear what you think. Show notes for today are going to be available at obandco.uk slash 122. So let's get going. Here's my conversation with David Payne. So I'm really glad to welcome David Payne to the Retail Transformation Show. David, how are things? I'm really good. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm really excited. We're going to be diving into some really complex data modeling and forecasting and all that sort of stuff and really diving into your world, which is is Rotogeek. Why don't you just help set the scene, David? What is Rotogeek? What's it doing? What sort of data is it handling and so on? Yeah, of course. So Rotogeek is a product that we market to retailers and other businesses that have shift working employees to help them optimize the way they schedule their staff and you know, includes mobile app and everything else. So that whole engagement with employees around the shifts they're working. And so I guess, you know, I've been listening to your series uh, on data and uh, yeah, we're really excited to kind of be a part of it and to contribute a few thoughts from our perspective. Uh, I'll try not to sort of um, focus entirely on pushing the product that we that we sell and talking maybe a bit more about the, the insights that we gather and the way we think about the world of data as a tool. But, uh, but yeah, that's what, that's what we have. So a tool that helps people optimize. And I guess from a, from a data perspective, that really revolves around forecasting. So picking up historic data that's going to give us a guide to how busy the store or different tasks within the store are going to be via their proxies of footfall or transactions or whatever, it, whatever data series the retailer is collecting through history to tell them about that. Yep. Um, proxying that into a demand function so we can see how many people we think we need at a particular hour of a particular day in a particular upcoming week in a particular store uh, doing what tasks. And then auto-scheduling to meet that demand. So kind of uh, complying with all the rules that you would have around meeting your employees' contract hours, being fair to employees in the schedules that they're working 
versus each other. And then obviously within those constraints, trying to hit that customer demand as well as possible. And then, as I said, sort of supporting that all through through nice web and mobile interfaces so that managers can, can see what's scheduled, employees can see their shifts, swap with each other, all those kinds of good things. So that's our, that's our product that we're, that we're bringing to the retail world. And I have to say, I do really love the Rotor Geek product. I think it's a very smart product. If you didn't know, when I was back at Tesco, I worked on big people projects, including actually how do we best schedule and rotor different people into the different shifts across a huge number of stores. And it's such an interesting challenge that you dive into because there are so many different aspects. It's not just an hours-based challenge. There are many, many more things that we'll, we'll get into as I'm sure we go through the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not a new problem, is it? And, and, I, and I know that probably many of your listeners will, will sort of know that it's, you know, it's not the first time that you know, SaaS products or sort of digital products have attempted to solve that problem through you know, use of data and optimization, auto-scheduling. Probably people have heard those terms around for a long time. Mm. But I think there is, you know, through the way that data science has moved on and through the way that the interfaces, mobile and apps have moved on, I guess there's a lot that, uh, that products like ours are doing nowadays that kind of are solving those problems in some new ways. Definitely. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of casting my mind back to, I guess, probably about, what, 2014. So things have moved on somewhat. But it's a, it's a really interesting point because you say it's not a, a new problem, and you're absolutely right. We've been talking about rotors, well, forever, really, <laughs> in the world of retail. Um, and quite often we're, we're talking about it's a paper-based process. Uh, maybe it's digital paper in, in a format like Excel. But what we're talking about here is taking that sort of human calculation that is going on uh, in a manager's head, and we're saying, well, certainly in the in the uh, auto scheduling world, we're saying let's put in a computer model, a data model that is replicating those human decisions. So I think it's a really good use case of how to actually use data in a real world scenario. Yes, definitely. And actually, it's not just replicating, I guess, what the human would do. I guess there is an, an element of that which saves the human time. Yep. You know, managers want to focus on coaching and selling and all those other operations in their store that, that they're good at, uh, probably not looking forward to making the rotor. So it's definitely saving time in that case, in that sense, replicating a human process. But obviously, we're, we're hoping that the, the system does it a lot better yes. uh, when, you're, when you're optimizing and when you're automating. And I guess we, we typically think you know, human rotor makers, maybe we'll get into a little bit of the kind of the how this happens, but human rotor makers often leave 10 or 20% of kind of labor efficiency on the table um, through the assumptions and the processes that they're following. A machine doing everything entirely logically and doing things you know, at machine speed you know, picks almost all of that up. So it's not entirely replicating. Yes. It's, yeah, replicating and then, and then making it a lot better as well. <laughs> it's an important distinction because, you know, yes, it is, it is replacing a human process and capturing the best things from that human process as well as the kind of the speed and power of the machine brain yeah. is obviously a very kind of important part of how we try and design our, you know, the way our product works and the way I think these things should work. But I guess just I, I was also thinking, you know, in the context of your show, uh, the, the series you've been doing on data, uh, for example, listening to your guest last week talking about lots of very interesting things um, about how you can how you can gather insights, kind of strategic level insights from data and how you can make mistakes by looking at things on too broad a level, but disaggregating takes you to more interesting insights and that sort of thing. I sort of thought it's interesting how RoadGeek fits into that sort of view of data or the value of data to businesses, because I, I guess there are some ways in which what we're doing, certainly the kinds of processes we're following and, and in some ways the, the tool that we've got, 
is about insights and about bubbling up from very wide data sets to kind of um, conclusions you might draw and strategic decisions you might make in your business. Mm. But actually, the core and mainstay of what we do is not really that at all. It's about myriad micro decisions at the sort of store level, um, at the individual, you know, rotor level that add up to a, a meaningful business kind of impact. But it doesn't have to manifest in uh, a strategic insight in that sense. It's just using data as a as a tool and implementing it kind of on the ground in that way. Yes, yes, very much so. And uh, yes, for anyone listening, that I think probably would have been the episode with Ian Shepard, which would have been episode 120. So do go and check that one out if you've not already listened. That's a really interesting episode. So let's dive into some of the detail here, David. Tell me about forecasting, which is, I guess, the start of the RotorGeek process, shall we say? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess, yes, that makes sense to break it up that way, because I guess, I, yes, there are sort of two two data science bits to what we do in our kind of auto-scheduling chain, mm. uh, but only one of them is really dealing with big data and what I guess lots of people would label as sort of machine learning or AI. Uh, optimization is sort of data science in a different way, which we'll yep. come on to. But yeah, forecasting we do in a sort of pretty traditional big data machine learning kind of way. Um, so we're taking a uh, significant amount of data from history. So we would often sort of, let's say we're onboarding a, a new retailer or a new set of stores, and we're trying to do this process for their stores for the first time. We'd be looking for sort of multiple years, sort of three to five years of history of, of whatever series of data uh, that store has that we think proxies labor demand in the best way. And obviously that's a big question in itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and, and often limited, I guess, by what's available. So, you know, stores will have obviously something from the POS. Many chains, but not all, will have footfall data. Really not all sort of chains of stores will have sort of footfall data that's granular down to department or aisle or sort of task level. Um, but but whatever series is available in the business, because it obviously needs to be being captured for some time, or ideally you've got that history to draw on. Yep. I guess our sort of machine learning process, then it knows a number of dimensions on which points in time in this store could be similar to each other. So it's looking for patterns around the typical Monday. It's looking for patterns around times of day, you know, evenings versus lunch times, yep. uh, down to the 15 minute interval. And it's looking for seasonality and it's looking for all sorts of things, um, all of which are, you know, what we call features of that data. And it makes its own decisions about which patterns that it observes for this particular store or for groups of stores, if it can sort of see likenesses across all the stores that are on retail parks that make them different from all the stores that aren't, Mm -hmm. for example. It's looking for all of those patterns and making its own decisions about which signals from sort of one period in time to the next were significant to predict what would happen, you know, next week. Yep. Uh, And from all of that history and all of that learning, it's generating a, a forecast model, I guess, of when those same series are going to spike uh, or the relative the relative density of those things in in upcoming periods um so that's so that's forecasting super can i can i just pause you there i'd love to dive into proxy data sources so in an ideal world you'd say i'd love to know this piece of information but just like you said might not exist <laughs> or you don't have enough data or enough detail or enough integrity in that particular data at which point you then need to choose a proxy. How do you go about choosing the right proxy and then editing, I guess, what you're calculating to make sure that it fits in? Yeah, well, I guess the way the way we think about it, and as I said, this is often, I mean, I guess our process 
involves a lot of um, partnership and sort of clever working together with the customer because they know what data they have. They know mm. lots of things about the operations of their business that might be quite specific to the particular thing they sell or the particular way they recruit and train. Sort of it's taking into account those things like what's available and what's, uh, what from experience, like what's the process today? What do store managers use today? Yep. Possibly that's nothing. Possibly that's just instinct around having run this store for a long time. They feel that they know when their stores are busy, what their customers want, yep. uh, what kinds of patterns they've used in the past. But possibly there's something. Possibly there is some sort of central planning, some dashboarding, some sets of data that are being used in stores today to help managers make good decisions and to react to changes and that sort of thing. So obviously that's a good place to look. I guess you have to map it to the ultimate end goal. One of the challenges we sometimes have going through this with customers is almost overexcitement, let's say, about the possibilities of, of data and, <laughs> and yeah, using machines to sort of to crunch massive volumes of these things. People immediately run to a kind of possibly kind of over granular view of, you know, counting, you know, because the, because the till has the data, you want to forecast separately all the different products that you sell yep. uh, and sort of maybe add that back up into a labor model. And there's obviously, you know, not, not just a sort of maybe spurious level of accuracy in that and, and, and possibly you know, very little impact on how many staff you would actually schedule mm. doing what exactly um, based on, you know, the kind of coffee you're pouring or the kind of sandwich you're selling or whatever it is. You need to sort of map it back to what am I actually going to get out in terms of uh, distinctions in the number and type of staff that I'm going to want at that time. Yep. Oh, and I, I suppose the other, not just furiously accurate, but I guess the, the smaller and smaller you make each set of data, the more lumpy and less signal driven you make it. Mm. So if you end up cutting up your data set to something which is, if you start with you know hundreds of customers a day walking to the store and you're forecasting a series that has dozens of hits in each sort of chunk of time, yep. that's a nice fluid sort of medium to forecast in. If you're cutting it up to something where you might only have one or two of something in an hour, you're suddenly dealing in a much lumpier data set that it's much harder to get kind of forecasting significance out of. Yes. So not only is it not really helping you do a good job of predicting what you actually need in your, in our case, in your rotor, um, but it, but it's also making, it's sort of in, inherently exposing the weaknesses in your data. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, keeping those feet firmly planted on the ground in terms of what are you actually trying to achieve is a, a really key piece in all of this. And, and in fact, any piece of data work that you're doing. So you're, you're hoovering up all these numbers and data sources, but it's not just about the numbers though, right, is it, David? You do some amazing stuff taking in the human aspect as well. Tell me a bit about that. Totally. Well, so I guess in several different ways, I guess, because ultimately it's a tool that's going to be used by humans uh, and these are ships that are going to be worked by humans. So yes, I mean, of course, it's... Uh, well, we're using data to do a sort of a jigsaw puzzle that a, a human, I guess, specifically meaning the manager or whoever's responsibility is to make the rotor, finds difficult. So yep. to do it at a scale uh, and at a level of accuracy and sort of absence of bias that humans find hard. That's the bit that we're trying to sort of take away from human reliance. Mm. But you're right, there's lots and lots of parts of this process that still have to be very human. So I guess, firstly, just in terms of optimization of the rotor, so far, we've been talking about the forecasting and the demand side uh, of how you kind of build up that function of what's going to make a good rotor for this store on this particular, this particular week, this particular day. Yep. When it comes to scheduling people into that rotor, you obviously got a lot of considerations about how those people could and will and want to work. 
Obviously, some of them are very black and white. Uh, you have contracts with your employees. You can't give them less than their minimum guaranteed hours for the week. Uh, there are labor laws that tell you how much rest you, at a minimum, must give them between their shifts. So some of those things are very black and white, but then some of them become softer and it's much more about corporate policy or, or, or learnings from you know, fatigue and other things that you, 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 know, you want to treat your employees in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Being able to configure something like your schedule optimizing engine to say, it, we think it's important that in a run of shifts, people don't have to set the alarm for two different a time each day. Yep. You know, we want to give people consistent start times in a run of shifts. For example, you know, no labor law kind of uh, requires you to do that. But in, for certain types of work and in certain types of culture, it's obviously that could make a really big difference mm. to how happy people are and how productive they are. And some of those things are about what you capture and what you almost can be bothered to consider. Uh, and of course, again, kind of lots of human managers do take into account sort of personal considerations, but they'll probably do so in quite an ad hoc way. And that introduces another problem, I guess, which is bias and unfairness. Mm. Quite apart from the limits of you know their sort of attention span to to properly remember all of those things they were supposed to try and remember. Yep. So again, if you set yourself up with a, a system or at least a yeah, process which is capturing constraints, which could be contractual or could be just informally arranged. Yep. And then as I was sort of, I guess I was referring to an example of something which is probably everybody kind of underlying has that preference. And now it's just a bit of a trade-off. You know, we, we said we, we want to make this rotor good for the store. That's the point of it being open. Yep. Um, we want to meet our customer demand. That's really important to, to us as a business and us as a team. And we just want to sort of balance that with the preferences for probably lots of staff members to ideally not work Saturdays. Um, but if it's the busiest day of the week, you're going to need many of them to do so. Yes. <laughs> so it's just a, you know, to balance that. But then when it comes to those things, I guess, to kind of to not score own goals and kind of make people work in unpleasant ways kind of arbitrarily when it was perfectly possible to solve the, solve the jigsaw another way and not to do so unfairly between them so mm. that somebody gets, in the, you know, weekends and lates is the thing people always talk about. So kind of just not to ration those out unequally um, as is most people's expectation. Yep, that makes sense. So essentially, we're we're adding a number of different constraints and rules and preferences here, which I then guess the next stage is to say, actually, how do we optimize given all of the data that you've hoovered up and, and forecast, given all of these constraints and limitations? Tell me about how you go about optimizing all of these different potential solutions on on this huge scale. Yeah, sorry, I, I I said at the top of this conversation that I sort of would I would try and sort of contribute just in a sort of general way to talk about interesting things in data uh, and what we've learned from doing what we've been doing for the last few years, and not not just talk about our product and how amazing it is, but uh, but yeah, I'm sort of very happy to talk about um, some of the ways that we've tried to go about that. I mean, I guess optimization. Mm. Uh, there are lots of, you know, in the data science world, there are lots of ways that you can think about how you're going to, how you're going to explore a space, how you're going to look at different alternatives, and then how you're going to rank and rate and cull them as, yep. as possibilities. And I guess we employ quite a lot of techniques in, in ours. Um, our data science team is kind of constantly kind of adding new, new tricks to that. I guess the core of it is a genetic algorithm, meaning that it's sort of, it, it'll, it'll start with some possibilities for schedules. Uh, it will look for the best ones and then it will keep those and mutate them into something slightly different and see if that's better or worse. And it'll keep doing that, expanding the set and then culling the worst. Um, and that's the core of what ours does. And I think a lot of, a lot of kind of optimization engines sort of start with that. But I guess we have a cocktail of other 
sort of space exploring techniques, um, in, again, in the way that we do it, which is maybe a bit more custom to the world of rotors, because in the world of rotors, we know already that there are things like there's a difference in meeting a requirement of one or two people for a very key role at very, very specific times, maybe all the time that the store is open versus the sort of the fine tuning of that seventh or eighth checkout person and when exactly they take their lunch break. You know, those you solve those problems in different ways. And we know when you're looking to see how well your possible solution has met those kind of multifaceted requirements of hitting demand, but also being legally compliant, but also being quite fair and all those sorts of things. We know that some of those types of rules, if you have quite a good solution, then a better solution is likely to be very nearby or a or a better solution is likely to be kind of the next valley over kind of thing. And the way that the mutation engines in what we do kind of think about think about looking through that space for the next best option. Yep. Um, so that, there's lots of things that go, go on in the way that we've sort of come to solve that problem. Mm. And it's really interesting. And I guess at each of those stopping points where you're measuring, is this a good rotor or not? Yes, you kind of, it's just a lot, it, you could almost think of it just as a long list of conditions and you're measuring it just in a quantitative way against all of them. Uh, all you really need to be able to do is convert that all back to a kind of single currency at the end. So you can say this one is better than that one. So it's giving almost like a score. Yeah, exactly. It's a score. Exactly that. Yeah, very interesting. So help me understand. So there's lots of lingo and buzzwords all around data at the moment. AI and optimization are, are the two which are going through my head at the moment. What's the difference from your perspective, David, between AI and optimization? <laughs> yeah, no, good question. So I guess... Most people would define AI, I suppose, as having some degree of uh, self-learning. So a system which which is generating its own insights from the feedback that it gets from the outside world and and learning what to try next as a result of that. So sort of of active kind of feedback loop like that. As opposed to, you know, as I just described, our kind of optimization engine, we we tell it the the rankings of the things that are going to contribute to that score. And we give it a few techniques for exploring the space and it will more or less run through that process. And I get, you know, I don't want to play it down. I think it's a very sort of clever process, but it's, but it doesn't learn exactly. Mm. When we talked about forecasting, I was saying that it, you know, at least by some definitions, our process kind of does learn. Uh, It's looking, it's getting more data all the time and it's looking to see whether the predictions it made before are sort of right and it makes its own decisions about what parameters are actually turning out to be important. So that's got that is a bit more AI, but the optimization part kind of isn't. And there's a there's a sort of good reason for that. But there's and there's an element of kind of where where we think our our product in particular will go in the future. Mm. And the good reason for it not to learn is the obvious thing for it to learn from is is from the manager. Yep. Uh, and a lot of people who sort of try our product out and I'm sure they say the same when they try other sort of others on the market as well. When they try a product out is, oh, I've run the auto scheduler. I've got a sort of potential schedule back for my week. Uh, and it's, uh, it's come up with some ideas that I wouldn't have thought of, like starting this person at 12.45 and, uh, you know, and using, using my part-timers in this particular way. And it's hit the level of efficiency. But there are a couple of things I'd like to change about it. I know those two people, these two people don't work very well together. Or I'd like to give this person this shift because they asked me. Um, or whatever it is. Or, or maybe, maybe it's some knowledge they have. You know, they say, oh, something special is happening on Thursday. I'm going to need an extra person in the, you know, to do the merchandising in the evening or whatever it may be. So, so there'll be lots of ways in which a manager will sort of want to add things to that road to make adjustments um some of which like that evening uh, extra merchandising pair of hands is sort of legitimate and it's you know that's a sort of piece of knowledge that a manager might have and our extrapolation from the past couldn't possibly know uh, and that's exactly why 
sort of the interface works the way that it does to allow them to do that. But an awful lot of those interventions are going to be sort of almost like reasserting the bias that the manager would have had it before, yep. would have had when doing this by hand. And as well as kind of, as I say, exploring the space more, more exhaustively and coming up with better novel solutions the manager wouldn't have thought of and doing it whilst not taking up any of their time. Obviously, one of the things we think is beneficial about using a machine-generated schedule like this is to get away from all of that bias. Mm. So to be able to say, it's actually perfectly possible to be mathematical about, is this fair? It's perfectly possible to be mathematical about, is this compliant? And it's, and you know if you're capturing all of the right things, it's possible to accommodate any number of considerations that the business thinks is, or the manager thinks is important. So making changes after that, I guess it's, it's appropriate to query why that's happening. And if our schedules were learning, if, if, our, if our auto-scheduler was finding that the manager would always move this person off the Saturday shift at the end of, if they'd been given it in the automated solution, yep. is it appropriate for us to learn that that's what we should be doing automatically? I think generally when you sort of have that conversation at the kind of stakeholder strategic level with a company thinking of deploying auto-scheduling in their business, generally the answer is no. Mm. So we have to be really careful about how we learn from humans in that way. It's it's interesting, isn't it? it? As we start to think, I guess, about the continuing use of data and uh, you know all the, the different ways of, of processing that data, we as humans have got to accept that because it's very easy. You know, I, I know I've certainly seen times where people have said, "Well, the numbers say that, but I've got twenty five years experience. I've seen this before. I know what's going to happen." How do you best find it? Best have a, a conversation about. Mm the experience versus the data if they're not agreeing, if they're, if they're directly in conflict? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess there's, we think there's sort of two elements, I suppose. One is that, yeah, I mean, I guess you're referring to that as ha- have a conversation. I think that's right. The, the process needs to incorporate those genuine sources of insights, right? So if there are things that, and I don't think we do think that, you know, our forecast engine or our optimization engine uh, is being told or has has the concept of every single thing that could make a difference. So actually, mm. you know, right, there, there is no feature in RoadSkip currently for thinking about whether two people work well together. Right, okay. But it's a really neat idea. And, you know, that's exactly the kind of feature we would be keen to in- explore, find out if that's a real phenomenon, find out how a person sort of managing those employees would want to sort of capture that and what they would expect it to do. And, uh, and ultimately, you'd want to test whether that does make a difference to their happiness or the business performance and that sort of thing. Mm. But, but ultimately, there'd be a way of knowing what you'd expect from having that characteristic of two users in your system uh, in terms of output. And you'd have a way of thinking about how you capture it and how you weight it and everything else. So, you know, if those insights exist... You know, I mentioned already the, the kind of the local knowledge the manager might have about something coming up on Thursday that's going to make some difference to the how busy their store is going to be versus other Thursdays like it in the past. Of course, that's a totally real thing. And I guess that's another area we're exploring quite a lot kind of this year, I suppose, is uh, how do we incorporate more of those local and you know global head office knowledge of things that are you know, exogenous factors, you couldn't learn them from the past, uh, they are going to make a difference and it is knowable. Um, so if you're, if you're able to capture those uh, in the process, it's better there than overlaid as an adjustment afterwards. Almost everybody would agree that. Yep. And if it happens once, it's likely to happen again. So you really want a process for kind of picking those up and incorporating them. Mm. That's the main thing we try and do, it, mostly in the sort of the forward development of our, of our product. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's really interesting because there are so many different levels of complication. So I guess my final question, just before we do wrap up, and this is, I suppose, in RotoGeek, but as well as dealing with data in any number of different instances, how do you know when enough is enough? How do you know not to overcomplicate and go down to the millionth level of detail? Where, where do you draw the line? Huh. I don't think we ever want to draw the line exactly. It probably depends exactly how you mean it. I, mean, <laughs> I suppose... It, all of these variations, if, the, if it's possible to systematize their capture, you know, if, if these are, if knowing something that would only make a small difference, but if it's something that you can hook into as a, a, a series with, with history, with reliable access, you know, if that's something that you could know about all of those dates in the past and look for different characteristics that would help you make a better prediction, then I think, you know, as a platform, we, we'd be excited about continuing to layer those in. I'm, mm. I think it'd be quite hard to draw the line and say something is going to make too little difference to even be worth considering or that, you know, sort of you're overcomplicating it and making it worse. I think, you know, I already alluded a couple of times to things that are going to make very little difference to the end solution. And I guess just from a change management uh, and and a tech and everything else perspective to sort of to, to pick your battles, I suppose, yeah, that, that's a very real thing at any stage of development for, for both our clients and and for us, and for any transformation. Actually, it's not just about <laughs> yeah, sure. not just about yeah, data exactly. as well. Yeah, um, so I think there obviously is an element of uh, working, you know, as efficiently as you can as you can with with, with what you can easily get mm. and reliably get. And I mentioned once you start sort of fishing in smaller and smaller pools, then very often that means the quality of the data is sort of going down as well. Right. Which you only want to be putting in something which is which is useful and significant. But yeah, in terms of the factors themselves and the things that might be worth considering, it's actually a very, very long list, you know, that uh, including lots of things that we don't yet incorporate and I'm sure we'd love to. So I think, yeah, I think you can sort of take it almost as far as, as far as you like, but you have to approach it in the, in the right way. Yeah, and I think it's a really strong point that you make about, you know, as you go down into small levels of, of detail, the data quality might become more questionable. So you do need to, of course, be careful there. Well, David, listen, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've enjoyed uh, embracing my inner geek, <laughs> learning about Rotor Geek, and I hope uh, everyone listening has as well. But how can people find out more? How can they get in touch? So please come and check out our website at rotorgeek.com and, uh, and get in touch if you are thinking of exploring digital scheduling and you think you know, a solution like ours could be what you're looking for. Awesome. Well, that sounds amazing. David, thank you so much for lifting the bonnet on, on Rotor Geek first, first and foremost, but also for sharing all of your insights and your experience. It's really, really enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks for having me on the show. But uh, these are really interesting areas. You know, we do what we do for, for a reason because we think these are problems that need solving and, uh, and interesting areas. And uh, yeah, it's been fun discussing it with you. Thanks for having me. So there we go. David Payne on the Retail Transformation Show. I'd love to know what were your thoughts? What were your key takeaways? Have you got new ideas about how you can apply some of the learnings that David shared into how you are using data? It would be great to hear your takeaways. If you are keen to explore if scheduling and smart scheduling is an opportunity for your retail business and your retail estate, then do reach out and let's have a, an initial conversation. Send me an email, oliver.banks at obandco.uk. 
That's oliver.banks at obandco.uk. And we can set up an initial session to explore the opportunities of scheduling for your business. I'll look forward to hearing from you about that. Go to the show notes at obandco.uk slash 122. And whilst you're over there, do remember to sign up for the Retail Transformation Briefing. This is a weekly email that includes all of the hot retail transformation news from around the world and allows you to begin to understand the insight and the trends as they are happening. It's absolutely free, so you can sign up for the Retail Transformation Briefing at obandco.uk slash 122. And by the way, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, then you should definitely go and check out episode 120, which was the episode that David referenced with Ian Shepherd. And that was about understanding data and data science in retail. And I'd also suggest you check out episode 119, number 119, which was about how to do predictive modeling. Thanks for tuning in to this episode, and I'll look forward to joining you on another episode of the Retail Transformation Show podcast very, very soon. Bye for now. 